What is up, everybody? Welcome into the Man Room. Thank you for joining me for episode 18. I am your host, Marcus Bridges. And as always, you can find us every place you listen to podcasts and even on YouTube and for some reason, TikTok. Uh, joining me today in the Man Room, somebody I'm very excited to get to catch up with, somebody I haven't seen for uh, 15 plus years for sure. Uh, a very accomplished individual. He's a filmmaker uh, with things like The Last Blockbuster on Netflix to his credit and also Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s. Um, and I also know him from a little band from Eugene back in the day called Alter Ego. Please welcome to the man room, Taylor Morton. Thanks for joining me, dude. Hey, look at that. I already made a made an error so uh unmuted your mic thanks for joining (laughs) (laughs) we can start over if you want no it's all good man i'm gonna keep this fresh and loose um i just (laughs) i really appreciate you joining me today super glad to actually have you in studio i know you're uh freshly back in eugene and uh uh how's everything going dude that's going pretty good pretty good i've only been back here for a few weeks so i'm still getting settled and relearning the lay of the land yeah i spent plenty of time here but it's been a long time. Yeah. And the town is pretty different, I'm learning. I mean, especially if you spend a lot of time down in that campus area. Um, it's, it's, it hasn't grown out at all, but it's grown straight up. And, I mean, a lot of those old party houses that used to get thrashed during live shows aren't there anymore. So Right, yeah. And I keep looking for things that I'm missing. And then just driving around and some places are exactly the same, you know, like no one i can't believe it's been 20 years no one fixed up that old crap crappy house but then some places are gone and some places are like like you said eight stories tall now when they used to be two yep so. yep a uh, bunch of work down there at fifth street it's actually starting to look really nice down there new nike stores if we needed one of those you know i was wondering where i was going to get my <laughs> air jordans is that a nike shoe yeah i okay. think so i yeah, think so i, I know. you know i've i've got the flat sold skate shoes on too so yeah. you got some adidas i yeah. yeah i'm not really a nike guy myself so i guess you could say i live in the way wrong place but uh you know yeah same i mean i'm a bad u of o alumni i guess <laughs> like yeah uh well you a u of o alumni for sure now uh did you study film in college no like to my knowledge, there wasn't really a film program when I was there. I took a couple of, like, movie classes, but we just watched movies and wrote papers on them, you know? Like right. They were to get credits to get <laughs> the heck out of there. Yeah. Um, but I, I got my degree in digital arts. Okay. Uh, I did do a little bit of video production when I was there. Um, like, not even a full class of it, but, like, this term in multimedia class we're gonna do a video so right i did those but no no film classes per se i hear they have a program now right i'm sure they do i I mean every liberal arts school should at this point if you're not you're kind of behind the times to say the least right right i mean (laughs) the technology has come so far and everybody has a 4k camera in their pocket yeah crazy to not have a curriculum around that and it's more important than you know a lot of the classes we took like you don't need math anymore. The right. people who told us we wouldn't have a calculator in our pocket all the time were dead wrong. <laughs> Way more than a calculator. I have a better computer than I learned on when you were telling me that right. in high school, yes. you know. 
But, well, I have to say, man, the quality of your films uh, speak for themselves. Uh, of course, everybody and their dog has seen the last blockbuster. Congratulations on that. Um, personally, I have to say, when it came out, I, well, I didn't know that you were behind it, first of all, when it came out. And so I didn't make the connection, and I immediately would have been right to it. What I thought, when my wife's like, hey, you want to watch it? And I was like, you know... I grew up with video stores, but not really Blockbuster. And so it's not like an aesthetic. And then I watched it, and then I was like, no, this is just video stores in general. If you feel that, you, if you were a part of that generation, this documentary is amazing. And it will make you want to travel to Bend to stand in front of the very last Blockbuster on Earth, man. So congratulations. Awesome work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, people have been really digging it. But that was, um, to your point about it being about all video stores, that was a big deal for me, because, like, I grew up out on the McKenzie River. We didn't have a video store at all, let alone a Blockbuster. And, you know, I would rent videos at the gas station right. down the street, which still holds that same, like, nostalgia for me of, like, going to the gas station, trading in my cans for the deposit <laughs> to go rent a VHS tape. And it has nothing to do with Blockbuster, but it's that feeling and that thing that we're all kind of missing now that, we, we forgot to miss because it faded out so gradually over the last 20 years. Yeah. Like it was a thing we did every weekend when you and I were in college, like blockbuster was yeah, just was, part of life. Right. It was cheap fun. Yeah. It was something that you could go and do as a college student, even, you know, with a few, uh, a few bucks in your pocket or whatever you drug out of the couch that week, you know, and, um, it, for me, I actually worked at a video store in high school for, for, you know, and I know that I join probably a ton of people that you've talked to because it's a great high school job. Um, I can actually comfortably say that video store that I worked at, it was, it's different owners now, but it's still up and running. It was a video store, you bake pizza and smoothie shop. And so, and you know, we had the, you know, the Pepsi cooler and stuff like that too. And a few, you know, little snacks and um, I, I mean, I, it's all I was doing was slanging pizza and videos to all my friends most uh, summer nights, you know, and, and uh, so, so super nostalgic. And, and, you know, I was even talking about it with my wife. We've been together for, um, I think, 13 years. If that's wrong, she might have words. But um, it, that's obviously I know how long we've been married, but uh, the whole like when we got together thing was blurry. But I do remember once in uh, Independence, Oregon, she went to Western so we went over to Independence to Hollywood video, and that was like one of our very first dates. And we took a movie back to her dorm room and and like, yeah, man, same thing that's talked about throughout the entire documentary, the popcorn and the, you know, and the smell. Uh, the smell was something that you guys brought out so well, and it, it really is just awesome. And I, I have a couple of questions, if you don't mind, sure. um, that I've always wondered from like a, a technical standpoint. Um, and first of all, Lauren Lapkus. Love her so She's much. She was a great choice for narration. Um, the earliest show on YouTube, if you've never seen it, uh, it's amazing. It's like a short form uh, thing that they did as like newscasters. And the, her co-anchor is going through a breakup. And each episode is named after a different part of like the, the grief process, like bargaining <laughs> and depression and everything. And they have like a full news set and everything. Um, I think it was maybe funny or die that did it or something like that. So it's really, really well produced, but a uh, great choice there. I don't know if that's a hundred percent your choice or if you saw her out, but that was amazing. Love her. Um, are you the guy that's at, I know you're the director, so this is probably a stupid question, but just, you know, uh, humor me because I'm naive about the process. Yeah. Are you the guy that's asking the questions for all of the interviewees in that, in the show? Yeah, for the most part, um, 
the way we did it, I had a filmmaking partner on this one, and he's like writer, producer, and I'm director in the credits, but we both did a lot of the jobs. And for the most part, when there was a interview, he would be monitoring the cameras and I would be asking the questions. A few times, um, if I couldn't make it, he would go and do the interviews without me. Like he did the New York ones and I did some of the LA ones without him and it, it evened out. Um, so the ones you hear in the movie where you hear us off camera, it's me. I think there's like four and it's me for three of them and it's him for the other one, but pretty much for the most part. Yeah. 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 I found myself, you know, is if I was asking the questions while watching it kind of in your voice. So it's like, I was hearing your voice. So I have always wondered that just as somebody, you know, I've, I've done some various shorts films and stuff like that when I was working for the radio station, but those things were always like three dudes in a camera. Like nobody was ever really credited with anything. And so, you know, everybody just kind of, stood there and acted out whatever they could. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's kind of how we did this. Like, the credits were an afterthought, but, like, really, there were two of us really just making it and setting up cameras and microphones and and just doing it however we could. And it was a four-year process. Wow. So, you know, there would be weeks when I was off, because I was making the Skadoc at the same time. Oh, okay. So that's why I wasn't at some of the Blockbuster interviews is because I was, you know, already involved in orange County with real big fish <laughs> doing something else darn it that day. Um, so it, you know, it was still very DIY and very like cobbled together. And I still don't know like the difference between a grip and a gaffer or a, a best boy. And these are all film jobs that have credits. And I think there are grips credited in our movie. I don't know what the grip does. <laughs> Well, it's good to know. And I mean, it's, it should be for people listening, it should be, um, you know, a little relaxing to hear that, like, you don't have to be a a huge pro uh, that's got, you know, decades of experience doing Hollywood movies to make a kick ass film like you guys did. And not only that one. Uh, I have uh, all sorts. I got a page full of notes on Pick It Up, too, because, you know, of, of uh, my love for at least, uh, you know, I'm a punk rocker at heart, but uh, I got a lot of ska in my blood, too, from being at those punk rock shows. So um, we'll get to that. And, uh, you know, it, actually, I feel bad because this is something that I do on every single show, but I was so excited to talk to you that I just jumped right over one thing. Uh, if anybody's wondering what we're drinking today, I'd like to like to feature that. Um Taylor actually suggested we grab some CBD drink, and uh, I got some Albus Blood Orange Cranberry CBD Elixir, and it is amazing. Have you tried it yet? I haven't tried it yet. I was oh, okay. waiting for permission. I don't know how this <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm a bad host. I'm going to try it right now. Yeah, go for it. Oh, that is good. Right? That's nice. Uh, yeah, I, we each have 64 ounces of it, so if we're incredibly relaxed by the time this is over, <laughs> it's because the elixir is so damn good. Um, I got that down at the, uh, the filling station. It's down here at the end of the road. Uh, and she poured me a small glass of it while she filled my growlers as just like a sample. And I almost just stayed there until you came here to tell you the truth. So, yeah. uh, great stuff from Albus. Check that stuff out. Um, getting back into it. I just wanted to, uh, and I'm sorry, I didn't ever give you permission to drink. There's also water there if you need water. <laughs> so try to be a good host, but I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm kind of excited. So I'm glossing over a bunch of stuff. Um, one of my things I wrote down here, what the fuck was Lloyd Kaufman's problem? Good <laughs> Lord, man. That was like, what was it? 112 seconds or something of yeah. Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah. And that's all we could use. We did a 90 minute interview and that's, you know, and we had to bleep even some of that out. Right. Um, after the fact, because 
um, not for language, but for like, we don't want to get sued because of some <laughs> of the stuff he said. And he was, you know, he's somebody I looked up to all, for most of my life because as a teenager, you watch like the Toxic Avenger and Sergeant Kabuki Man and these crazy trauma movies that he is the genius behind. You mm-hmm. know, he's like, he is trauma. And um, they were just like, Awesome. They were the coolest movies. They're terrible, but as a kid, you don't know, at least I didn't know that movies could be bad. Like it took me all the way up until like the 10th time seeing Star Wars Episode One before I knew movies could be bad. Right. I thought all movies are great and fun, and there's no difference between The Toxic Avenger and Batman Returns. They're the same quality of movie. I didn't know. But, you know, I thought these were amazing movies. And then later, you know, in college and stuff, those movies came out on DVD and he had all these making of like documentaries where you could see. And that's when I learned like, oh, these were made for no money, like just crazy indie. You know, the special effects are just like a guy with a bucket of blood dumping it just off camera, (laughs) that kind of thing. And that, you know, coming from punk rock like you, the DIY kind of just making stuff really appeals to me. Yeah. And so I was a big fan of Troma, and it was a big deal. I was in New York to shoot um, uh, with the Slackers for the Ska Doc, and somebody canceled, so we had a, a day off. And Lloyd Kaufman had been on our list of like, oh, we should reach out to Lloyd. I think he'd be interesting from the indie perspective. And um, we emailed the office or called the office, I forget, and on like a day's notice was like, is Lloyd Kaufman maybe available tomorrow in New York? And they were like, eh, maybe, but it was like, we'd really like, it. and he finally kind of reluctantly agreed that we could come to his house and film this interview. And we did. And he was like the nicest, sweetest old dude just in this weird, fancy New York apartment He's, it's like really fancy, but the art is the Toxic Avenger right. painted nicely. <laughs> I noticed that. It's very like, like if a fancy old dude was into like trashy '80s movies. Yeah. Um, and he was super nice and and kind, and we were talking about filmmaking and how because we were making a low budget movie in front of him. Yeah, he can relate. He can relate, and we we bonded. And then the second we turned the cameras on he snaps into that character of this cranky old guy who hates everything. Like the stuff you see in the movie that came out of nowhere. I was legitimately shocked how mean he was to me Yeah, in I, that moment. Cause we had been hanging out for an hour <laughs> just like shooting the shit and he's totally fine. And then the camera turns on and he snaps into that's his character is cranky uncle Lloyd. Gotcha. Um, and he never broke that while the cameras were on and then we turned the cameras off and he's like super sweet again. And he signed a toxic Avenger poster for me. I have it up in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, it's one of those weird things where he, he is very conscious of what his brand is. Uh huh. And he knew we were making a movie about blockbuster and he wants to be known as the guy who hates blockbuster. Okay. Which is, he's, he's like the only one. It's great. Yeah. You know, we thought we would have a lot. We thought because of the way they put the mom and pop stores out of business, we thought, oh, half the people are going to hate Blockbuster. We're going to talk to Kevin Smith and he's going to be like, video stores are great, but Blockbuster is the worst. As it turns out, 
I think enough time has passed and everybody's just like, eh, they were fine, <laughs> you know? And so we didn't get that. And so Lloyd was the only person who gave us that kind of negative anti-corporate thing, which we really needed. Right. You know, because it's not all pleasant. Blockbuster Video was the Walmart of, you know. Video stores, yeah. Video stores coming into small towns, putting the local store out of business. The one that is the last Blockbuster, that's what happened to them. Yep. They were forced to become a Blockbuster. So we felt like we really needed that angry kind of rebuttal and Lloyd was the only one who gave it to us. Yeah. And and he gave it to you in spades too. Yes. <laughs> if you have not seen it, uh you need to go check out the last blockbuster on Netflix. Uh, I'm totally aware that 99% of the people that are listening to this have have already seen it and uh I mean when I when I saw him do that I was wondering if it was a character but the way the things that he had to say about like the anti-corporate, you know, and it it kind of hit home and, and you're right because that is part of the of the larger story so it was good to hear it but it's also at the same time you know i mean it, has he was he privy to any money whatsoever from his movies ever being in a blockbuster like did he ever get any of the chunk of any of that revenue yeah so the way it worked and he sort of starts to explain this in the movie but he gets derailed by his own uh, whatever but right. but um there were two types of blockbusters. There were the corporate stores and the franchises. Corporate stores would not carry any of his movies. Okay. It was just like a no. They didn't get to pick their own movie. Just a sweeping policy. Yeah. I mean, nobody at the store. You couldn't go in and bring a movie and say, would you carry this movie? They'd say, like, we get our movies from corporate. Right. You know, it says buy 200 copies of Titanic. We buy 200 copies of Titanic. Heck, they just show up. Right. Um, but the franchises were different. And I found this fascinating. We found this out kind of talking to people as we went, but they were so different that they would have totally different movies in different neighborhoods, like especially in New York, like in the Jewish neighborhoods, they would have way more Woody Allen movies and other things, you know, and in the sure. more, the black neighborhoods, they would have the more Eddie Murphy movies or whatever. Lots at the of time. Spike Lee and stuff Lots like of that. Lots of Spike Lee. Yeah. And that way, you know, it was catering to their customer base right. geographically, but the corporate stores weren't like that. Um, so he did have trauma movies in franchise stores where the like managers were cool with him. But the way it worked back then uh, for indies is they just bought it. you know, so if they bought ten copies of one of his trauma movies, he he got the money for ten sales. Gotcha. It's not like, you know, they, recurring. We talk about revenue share in the movie, which is what the studios did with Blockbuster. but um, that was a specific deal with the big studios where they would get, you know, 50% of the rental money. But the reason they did that is because they get, gave them the movie for free in the first place. Right. Which Troma never had deals like that. So <laughs> yeah. it, it was never a big amount of money. But when you're making indie movies, it never is a big amount of money. Right. From any individual sale. You know, like right now, the biggest rental chain is Redbox. Uh, we did not get our movies into Redbox, which... Is funny. It's and yeah, fitting, quite you know, funny. <laughs> or on Netflix instead, which is also funny. But you know, there's something like thirty thousand red boxes out there. So if they carry your movie, you do, you might make a chunk of change. Right. But they're buying their DVDs for you know two bucks a piece or something. Sure. Tops, and they cost you a buck fifty to make. So it's not like you know, and that's kind of how it was with. 
Blockbuster when there were a ton of them is they would get these bulk discounts. So the indie movies that didn't have the revenue share would make some money, but it wasn't nearly as much. Yeah. 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 Copy. Uh, how high was Doug Benson when you had him? Which time? <laughs> <laughs> when he, when you guys do the, the kind of the shots of him, like walking in there the first time. And when he takes his glasses off and looks around, like I, you know, I've, I've actually interviewed Doug Benson for a radio show I've done in the past. And he was just absolutely blazed out of his mind and hilarious. Right. That's Doug Benson's brand. And he plays it better than anybody ever could. Oh yeah. Uh, but I just, you know, being in a recreationally legal state, I'm sure that Doug just went uh, buck wild when he got to Ben. So, yeah, I mean, he's a fan of, of Oregon in general. Yep. Uh, he's done a bunch of 420 shows here. Lots of 420 shows in Eugene and Portland. And, um, he actually, because we asked everybody we interviewed if they wanted to come to the store, you know, we would fly them in and they could do that that bit. Basically, we, we needed somebody to be our audience proxy for checking out this last store. Right. He was the only one who was on board. But not only that, he was so excited about it. He booked his own flight, his own hotel. He just told us when he was coming. That's awesome. And um, I mean, to the question of how high was he? I don't <laughs> 15? I mean, <laughs> I've, I've heard his uh, Getting Doug With High podcast. He wasn't that high, <laughs> but he was probably like Doug Loves Movies level high. Okay, gotcha. I, That's a great skill to put it on. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I, I love the dude. He's always been, he, he always is just, it doesn't ever strike me as a celebrity. Every time I've talked to him, he comes oh, yeah. off as just as, as regular of a dude as there is. And, uh, you know, brilliant uh, with his comedy and everything like that too. Um, I, I was super happy to see him in the in the documentary. You also got Ron Funches, who is an Oregon comedian, mm-hmm. uh, who was absolutely hilarious. And uh, <laughs> I, what his story that he told about going out and, and renting all of the GameCube games right before the blockbuster went out. Uh, man, I, I know so many people that that have said to me since this has all happened, like, man, I can't believe I didn't think of that. It was a really good idea. Such a good idea. I didn't think of it either. I guess I was too, like, by the books. Honest. (laughs) It never occurred to me that once they went out of business, those late fees would go away. Right. Like, just rack them up. Because, I don't know, I was worried, like, would, would that be on my credit report? But of course not. No. Of course not. <laughs> when Blockbuster goes away, Blockbuster goes away. They're not coming after anybody right. for late fees. And whoever you know keeps the most movies wins. And I, <laughs> and I guess it was Ron Funches, right? I guess it right? was Ron. And video games were the best because, you know, movies were like 20 bucks, but video games were 50, 60 bucks. Yep. And they've stayed that way. I mean, the value has just kind of steadily increased over our lifetime. I, I remember in... High school, it was like forty bucks for an in, uh, like an N sixty four game or something like that, you know. And now here we are, years later, with technology that we never even dreamed of, and uh, games were only sixty bucks. I feel like we actually have it pretty good in the gaming world. Yeah, inflation. I mean, it, it's not that bad in video games if you look at, you know, college tuition or yeah, gas. Yeah, <laughs> the things people have to pay for. Video games have gone up ten percent. Yeah, yeah, it's great, and I mean. Look, I, I've got a buddy that animates video games uh, for a very big company, and I really hope they're taking care of you. I imagine they're still making a ton of money because uh, the games haven't gone up in price. So everything must be working on that side. Just keep it the way it is, you know? They're selling a lot more copies. Yeah. Video games make more money than movies do. That's crazy. And you see like a, a game like Grand Theft Auto. It's been out for like eight years, and they're still turning over millions and millions of dollars every day just from the online platform, you know? 
uh, it really makes you wish you'd have thought twice about going into video game animation in college rather than studying uh, <laughs> radio, which was, you know, still a thing. You could still study that when I was in college. So I guess I'll let that date me. Uh, and we will get to that because Taylor and I spent some time together and some pretty significant time when we were uh, at the University of Oregon. And that's a whole other story. But I really wanted to focus first on, on the movies because, A, I enjoyed them so much. And, B, um, I just... I feel like you're like the king of nostalgic things. Like uh, between the last blockbuster and your other film, Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s, I just found myself wanting to listen to certain songs and have certain feelings and and find certain things, which I'll get to. Um, of course, this was directed by you and produced by uh, the great uh, Ray Mastro Giovanni, uh, somebody else that I was uh, fortunate enough to share the stage with back in my college days. Um, last time I spoke to him, he actually was over Facebook Messenger just at random. I saw him as like a, a mutual friend. One of the things that Facebook is actually good for, and there's few. Um, but, you know, I, I just sent him a message and he remembered, you know, he remembered me, which blew me away because, you know, who was I? Um, but he told me that he was making this movie with you. And to tell you the truth, that completely slipped my mind. And then I saw it when it came out and I saw his name on it. I love that guy, man. I was so happy to hear that you guys are working together. Um, tell me a little bit about Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s. Yeah, that's um, a music documentary about Ska music. And Ray, actually, it was his idea. I did a Facebook post after I finished my first movie before that, which was about a band called The Refreshments. And then I, I had just come out, and I was asking people, what should my next movie be about? Because I'm not that creative. I just do the work. Um <laughs> And Ray was like, do one about ska, you idiot. Cause, you know, I'm still playing in ska bands at that time. Like, I have been playing. I'm a trumpet player, so there's right. not a lot of things. You know, there's ska bands, and then there's, like, orchestra, which I was never good enough at. Um, so I've been doing it now half my life at, in real bands, but I've been playing trumpet for uh, 30 years. That's wow. a bummer. <laughs> uh, getting old. But, you know, it's been a huge part of my life, and so it was kind of a no-brainer, but it didn't occur to me as someone who makes music documentaries and nostalgia documentaries. And Ray was like, do one about ska music. And I had just done a movie about one band, and, I, and that was a lot of work. And I'm like, how do you do one about the whole... There's so much to ska music... And also, I'm not well-versed enough. It has such a rich history. Mm -hmm. goes back to Jamaica and then in England in the 70s and 80s with two-tone that it was not my ska music. Right. So I said, what if we focused on the 90s, which was our generation of ska? Because there are already documentaries about Jamaican ska and two-tone, and they're great. And I've watched them to learn where ska came from. <laughs> right. But nobody had covered this, you know, when it got real goofy and real mainstream and, like, was everywhere. And he was like, that's a great idea. You know, it's it's a movie for us. And I said, okay, great. I'll make that. But you got to make it with me because it's going to be a lot of work. <laughs> and he had never done anything with movies. But he was so connected in the Scott world because he's been doing music professionally since college. Right. You know, he's still producing ska music really that's awesome in japan and and here and so he had a lot of the connections i had some too but it was basically like i'll do it if you do it with me kind of thing and then yeah we we just did hooked up and made a powerhouse it sounds yeah, like man exactly 
such a fun documentary. And, uh, you know, I was not aware until I saw the documentary what the history of Ska was. I'd never even heard about it. And I think you guys do a great job kind of wrapping up the, the um, you know, what brought it to the 90s. I thought that was really informational and also the way that you kind of like animated some of it too, I thought was fun. So, um, I, I like I said, uh, just a great movie. Not only if you're a Ska fan, like you don't have to be skanking in the pit to every Ska band just to like this documentary. This will remind you of a lot of those DVDs that used to come out with your bands, like your take off your pants and jacket with Blink-182, and then they followed that up with uh, like Harder, Faster, Faster, Harder, or whatever it was. Um, I think Newfound Glory did one called It's All Downhill From Here, um, Some 41, Does This Look Infected? These DVDs that came out, is just like, yours is much more professionally made and much more uh, well-produced, but it reminded me of like, you're talking to bands about band stuff that only bands know about, you know, backstage this and in the van that and on stage that. And I just, that just melts me into a puddle, man. I almost like my wife uh, got home and I was rewatching it the other day and she got home and there was like 30, 40 minutes left and she watched the last 40 and she hasn't seen it. And she's like, Oh man, I, you know, I remember seeing this band and that band. I was like, did you want to start it over while I cook dinner and we'll just watch it from the beginning and you can get, and she's like, yeah, I, I guess, you know, but she totally did that for me. Um, you know, Tim Armstrong as the narrator, once again, just a slam dunk of a choice. Uh, you know, his name immediately. It was the same thing with Lauren Lapkus in the last blockbusters. Like, Hey, that's, that's Tim Armstrong. Like immediately I knew. And that means it's a great choice. Um, did you get to, did you get to meet Tim Armstrong interview him or anything? Yeah, so he didn't want to be interviewed for the movie. He had just done a, an East Bay punk documentary, and for whatever reason, he's just like, I don't want to do on-camera interviews anymore, uh, which broke my heart because yeah. I had been, from day one, I was like, we got to get Tim. He's like, you know, Rancid had some of the biggest ska songs in the 90s. They're a punk band, but they had big, huge ska hits, and that band is four people. Tim Armstrong is the ska guy. Right. He's the guy who's like, we got to do ska. Um, so he was like on my list from day one of like, we got to get to Tim. And, uh, I met him at, at back to the beach, which was a huge ska concert that happened while we were making the movie, which was very, you know, stroke of good luck yeah. for us. Like, Oh, all these ska bands are going to be in one place at one time. We'll go there with cameras. <laughs> I met him backstage. He was there with the interrupters. Um, and he was like kind of aloof, like, Hey, you, will you be in our movie? He's like, oh, yeah, I heard about that. You know, uh, hit me up later. No contact information, by the way. Just right. like, yeah, hit me up later. Like, okay. I'll look you up on Instagram. I'll just yell into the void. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that was it of like, well, I guess he doesn't want to do it. And then one day, three or four months later, I got this phone call out of the blue, unknown California number, and when you're making ska movies and blockbuster movies, you have to answer every unknown call because you never know. Right. Who's you calling? Know, like one of those is Doug Benson. One of those is is uh, Aaron Barrett from Real Big Fish. And then this one, I, I picked it up and it was, uh, I'm going to butcher this, was, hey, this is Tim <laughs> from Rancid and Operation Ivy. And I knew it from, hey, this is Tim, right? Because his <laughs> right. voice is so distinct. He He's is got the that, Tim. That raspy voice. But he's like, from Rancid and Operation Ivy. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, like, no, I'm just like, catching my breath. Just yeah. give me a second. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> and he said, you know, I've been thinking about your project, and I'm going to stop doing the voice. 
I've been thinking about your project and um, and I was thinking, oh great, he's going to be in the movie. This is, is going to be awesome. Because Operation Ivy, for those who don't know, are like the precursor to all of the third wave ska bands that we all listen to. They influenced everybody yeah. in California. And everybody had that album, even if you weren't. And I think you guys touch on it in the movie. Yeah. It's like, even if you didn't like ska punk or anything, you had that Operation Ivy yeah. album. The only yeah. one. And so I was really excited that he was going to maybe be in our movie. And he said, um, have you guys cast a narrator yet? And it was right when we were doing our casting and we had offers out. I think Patton Oswalt would have been funny. Yeah. Um, Oscar Isaac from the Star Wars franchise used to be in a ska band. So we were like in talks with his manager. Of okay. Like, Wouldn't it be funny if Poe Dameron was our <laughs> narrator and, you know, trying to get a name to help with distribution sure um but nobody was like signed we were just talking to people and i was like well not really it's like well i want to audition oh okay tim armstrong you would like to audition (laughs) uh to narrate our ska movie um but basically i was just like uh well you don't have to audition (laughs) let me just check real quick with my producer and i'll i'll call you back and I called Ray. I was like, it should be Tim Armstrong, right? He's like, yeah, it should be Tim Armstrong. <laughs> and I called him back. And I was like, you got you got the job. Uh, and he said, great. I just want to, like, meet and, and, like, get a sense of what the project is about before I sign on. I was like, I don't know what that means. I live in Oregon. But, yes, I will come to your studio in L.A. When? Tomorrow? Yeah. I'll be, uh, okay, sure. Um <laughs> So we set an appointment and he legitimately like wanted to make sure I was legit. Wow. So he made me come to his studio and we just hung out and talked about ska. He was, so he was kind of quizzing you, you think? Kind of. He just wanted to make sure it was like legit, you know? And also I kept pushing the Operation Ivy thing and I wanted to get access to like their old home movies and photos and all that stuff. So I knew that was like an angle too like if i go there i can at least and maybe get him talking and maybe he'll let us bring some cameras in and film some of that stuff yeah and it, it kind of worked out but i went down there at, at his studio met him i started talking about scott looking through old operation ivy photos and he's telling me oh that show was this crazy one and then green day was there and then we did this thing and that one and this one, oh, don't use that show. That was a bad show. Look at look at how drunk I was or whatever the <laughs> the things were. And we were just hanging out like that for a day. And he still didn't agree to do it. I, I went back to my friend's house. I was crashing on his couch. And he was like, okay, um, come back tomorrow. And we'll, uh, I forget what the thing was. I had to come back tomorrow for something. And he called me the next day and he's like, it can't do today. Can you do the next day? Meanwhile, like I'm like, I have flown down to LA for this. So I'm (laughs) rescheduling my return flights, trying to figure this out. And it ended up being like three days later, he's finally free. And the man's like on a crazy schedule where he works and then he has to have a nap. And then he, you know, he's (laughs) rock stars, man. (laughs) You have to go because I'm going to take a nap. Okay. All right. <laughs> Sounds well, good, Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong from Rancid <laughs> and Operation Ivy. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but I went back the the next day. I come up to the studio. He's sitting outside with an acoustic guitar, um, just sitting, you know, 
outside patio, lean back. And I get there. He's like, oh, hey. And he starts playing some songs. He's like, you know, every song is better as a ska song. And he starts playing, like, old Motown songs and, like, 60s songs, ska. And we're, like, doing a sing-along, like, it's a campfire. And I have to pinch myself. Like, this is, yes. is this a real moment? <laughs> I'm hanging out with him. Armstrong, and he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to do your movie. This is going to be great. We can record it here. You know, my buddy Kevin will engineer it. Kevin Bavona from The Interrupters. Okay. Big deal. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, okay, so it's all, we're good. There's no contracts or anything with, with Tim Armstrong. It's just, we're good. Based on, based on your word. Yeah. And you can use all that Operation Ivy stuff. And he took me around. He let me see, like, he still has the guitar, the Operation Ivy guitar. He, he's like, here, you want to play it? <laughs> it's left-handed. So I can't play it. Right. I'm Even if like you wanted holding to. holding it awkwardly, like, this is, I'm touching rock and roll history. You know, yeah. punk rock history, that's as good as it gets. Right. You know, that's Tim Armstrong's guitar from Operation Ivy and Early Rancid. It's just amazing. And then to top it all off, at the end of that day, he's like, hey, do you want to meet Flea? <laughs> from Red Hot Chili Peppers? Yes, Flea oh from God. Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> Apparently, Flea was at that studio recording trumpet for some movie soundtrack or something. So he just takes me in a room and he's like, hey, Flea. Unbelievable, dude. And we just talked about uh, Fishbone for a while. But I'm hanging out with Tim Armstrong and Flea talking about music and like that was my job that day that's amazing that's that's <laughs> as good as it gets yeah for sure man and uh, i mean it's cool when i guess you see them in their normal environment and they just are acting like you know not the people that they are on stage not the people that they are on tour but just a dude in his daily life and it's cool that they kind of like took you in for that day and you got to like just hang out just yeah. like tim armstrong hangs out like I don't know that I would be able to keep a lid on it. Like I, you, you seem like you played it really cool, and I got I, hats off because I, I get giddy around people, and and I start to smile like an idiot, and I just you know I think I would have ruined it. He would have been like, I'm not doing this guy's film if it was me. It was tough. <laughs> it was tough not to be like a giant fanboy. Yeah, you know? and that happens to me a lot with these things, and I kind of have to develop this like ability to, in the moment, play it cool. Right. Like. But as soon as I left that day, I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm calling everybody I know. You wouldn't believe what just happened. You won't believe. <laughs> and I'm not like a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, really. I mean, I live in America and was alive in the 90s, so I'm right aware <laughs> of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. But I am a huge Back to the Future fan. So when I see Flea, I'm like, Flea, man, I got to tell you, I loved you in Back to the Future, too. And he, he looks up from his his bass that he's playing bass while we're talking. No big deal. He looks up and he goes, oh, yeah, I was in that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess once you, I guess once you do the soundtrack for Armageddon, everything else just kind of seems small, you yeah, know? You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, man, I love it. Well, uh, you know, uh, one thing that you touched on in Pick It Up, Ska in the 90s, and you already kind of mentioned this a little bit when we were talking about the last blockbuster, but the DIY uh, nature of Ska, and um, I think it was Aaron from Real Big Fish is talking about how they would go down to Kinko's late at night and glue a bunch of stuff to a piece of paper and draw a couple funny pictures, and that was their flyer. Um, and actually, you and I had uh, a flyer, and I found... A giant stack of them, and you're not going to believe this, but this was 
Thursday, December 1st at Agate Hall, we did a punk rock holiday bash. Oh, yeah. This was a free show, and I believe that you made these flyers. If it's the one I'm thinking of with Jesse Caps, yep. <laughs> Jesse Caps. You know, I just, um, this is amazing, by the way. Keep them. I got plenty more I'll give you after the show. I will. I'm going to do, I'm building a new music studio, and I found a box of old flyers. I'm going to do like a wall art thing out of them, and I'll, I'll throw these in there, but... God, that was such a good idea. Yeah. You know, like it was a fun show. Now in the world of of YouTube and TikTok and like everybody is a cover band and everybody's doing there's no new ideas right. and everything. But at that time, twenty years ago, to do to make all the local punk bands and these were, you know, Capcom Suicide who headlined, they were one of the biggest local punk bands at that time. Yep. To make them all do Christmas songs and do a Christmas show. Yes. It was great. <laughs> For and free on a college campus. It pretty well attended too, if I remember. I mean, it wasn't well wasn't attended. sold out or anything because we didn't sell anything. But yeah, yeah, it was uh I mean it was I really enjoyed it. I also enjoyed we recorded a Christmas song with you out the McKenzie River. Right. All the bands did. Yeah. And we I basically mean, made an EP that never never saw the light of day. No, and I don't <laughs> have those recordings. I don't know who does. <laughs> Well, you'll be glad to know um, one of the one of the reasons that uh, that obviously we know each other is we we played uh, shared the stage together a few different times, uh, but also you were the guy that recorded and produced my college band One Point Stars album, and uh, I, I have to tell you, dude, we've been very good stewards of the records because we've got the whole full length album still. The entire band shares it all the time. We've got a slew of pictures. You actually looked at some pictures over there on the wall from one of our Wow Hall shows uh, that I, I think maybe you guys played on that show with us. I'm not sure. Um, but you were hugely instrumental in the Eugene music scene at the time, and I've been a part of it in and out. I, I did some radio, so obviously I was I got to you know do some local stuff, but I also had another band um, a, a few years later, I think like 2008-ish, 2009, and the music scene in my humble opinion, was never anything close to what it was when we were in college back then during that those powerhouse punk days. There was there were so many good punk, uh, punk and pop punk and ska bands that were coming through the area. Um, you did a project called Eugene Rock Music, right? That was you? Yeah, and again, the it's all outdated now, but at right. the time, there wasn't a way, you know, there weren't Facebook groups or, you know, Instagram, whatever's. And so I wanted to, I did go to college for like web design and stuff. And I was making websites for a living. Yeah. I just did air quotes for the <laughs> listeners. Um, but so I, I, I made this website and basically someone else had done a, a ska one, the Oregon ska pages that just listed every band, how to get a hold of them, you know, listen to their MP3s if they had them shows you know there was a calendar there that people could add to which was cutting edge technology you know, oh yeah there's nothing like it in 2004 was, yeah i mean uh, 2003 four yeah yeah and and we gathered all these rock bands and eugene had such a big scene at that time and i don't know because i left and i've heard from other people that it's been up and down since but at that time i mean at the peak of eugene rock music we had the website we had a comp that I just found a copy of that is really rad. It's got like 30 bands on it or something. I don't know if we were on that or not. I think you are. Oh, yeah? Because I've made the comp. Well, it's probably, yeah. <laughs> it stands to reason. And uh, and we had a monthly 
showcase at the Wow Hall. Yep. Where they let me, little old nobody, book an all local night at what at the time was the biggest all ages rock club in town. And they let us keep it at five dollars, all ages, and they gave I think they gave us Friday nights once a month. It yeah. was amazing. Yep. And you were able to do like different genre nights where there was like heavier nights or there was ska yeah. nights and, and punk nights and stuff. And um, those were the the most well attended shows that my band One Point Star ever played at for sure. And um, there was you know I, I felt like there was wasn't there some kind of element of like giving back to the Wow Hall too like with that or there was some kind of charity element yeah, there almost. Well, the Wow Hall's a nonprofit, and so um, we didn't make any money. Like the five dollar, and we would sell out some of these shows. Yeah. There were hundreds of people, so they were making some money that helped keep the Wow Hall going. And you know, in exchange, we were cross promoting, and we got a night. It was an opportunity. You know, anyone who's ever played in a local band knows how hard it is to get on the good shows at the good club yep. in your town. And the Wow Hall was the good club, and they would have the good shows and the good shows would maybe have a local opener. If you were lucky, maybe none, like you're wearing a lag wagon shirt, lag wagon comes through. There's no local opener. The local opener is gutter mouth, right? Or, you know, <laughs> or Pennywise or something. It's like crazy. Yeah. Um, so the fact that we could have you know, four, sometimes five local bands at a legitimate club, you know, some of these bands, never got to play the wild hall except these showcases so right that meant a lot to us but it was never a money thing the money all went to the wild hall yeah which is great it's great and, and it's probably it one of the reasons that it's still going today i mean and i've got some great memories of the wild hall um i actually was fortunate enough i opened doing stand-up comedy for brian posein there nice yeah and uh it also in uh, a great part in the last blockbuster from brian posein the uh the king of of nerds if you oh, ask yeah. me uh we actually had him in our radio studio and we had a Nintendo 64 hooked up years past the Nintendo 64's time. And it would just run Mario Kart. And the only reason we did that was because in the early days of Twitch, we wanted to live stream and they kept kicking us off the platform because we were doing a radio show and we weren't playing video games. And it's like, you see where it comes now and they'll take anybody. Like they'd yeah. love to have your radio show on Twitch now. So we hooked up that old Nintendo 64 to like a crappy 12 inch studio TV that we had on the wall. And Brian Posehn walks in, and he's like, is that Mario Kart? <laughs> you know, and we're just like, yeah, sat there and played Mario Kart for the whole time, do like a five-minute radio spot with us, right back to Mario Kart. I love it. Uh, it was great, but, uh, you know, back to the Wow Hall, um, just some of the best memories I have as a musician um, are at that place, and not only being there playing on stage, feeling like I don't belong here because I've seen way too many awesome bands play, you know? That was the only time I got to see No Use for a Name that wasn't at a Warp Tour, and I was close enough to touch Tony Sly, and every day I wish that I had because, <laughs> uh, you know, I miss him more than certain dead relatives, and uh, um, it, it just, that's one of the reasons that Pick It Up's gone in the 90s, I think, was so... Uh, it, it hit me so hard right in the chest is that, you, you know, I saw some of these bands come through and play places like the wow hall and the shows exactly how they describe how you described them in the film, uh, wild fun, you know, mosh pits getting dropped on your head, picked up by five or six people and right back into it. All of a sudden somebody's holding the shoe up cause somebody lost one, you know, it, it's that feeling. And of course we're sitting here just post 2020. We haven't, none of us have really had that for like well over a year's time and it's been too long. Um, do you have any shows that you're going to? Do you have anything booked that you're uh, that you're excited about? You know, it's it's been a really tough uh, 
year for me, just like for most people. And I am, I have not let myself get excited yet. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I got excited last year when things were going to open up and it was going to get back to normal. And, you know, you just get your heart broken of like, well, I guess I'll just get those tickets refunded for that thing I was going to go to. Right. And so I haven't, I, I don't have my sights set on anything yet. I'm too, uh, you know, once bitten, twice shy. I hear you. I'm, I'm hesitant until it actually happens. I'm, I can't get my hopes up. I, I hear you, man. I, I really do. The last show I went to, uh, my wife bought us tickets, and we drove down to uh, Sacramento for Punk and Drublick. We saw No Effects, Less Than Jake, uh, Goldfinger, and um, Flogging Molly was that show at, at, at Beer Fest. I mean, I couldn't have been more in my in my element. And uh, it was really cool um, to see, you know, Less Than Jake and, and, of course, Goldfinger be a big part of the documentary. Um, I, I thought it was funny. Uh, remind me of the lead singer of Goldfinger's name. I always forget it. John Feldman. Thank you, John Feldman. I, I always have Darren Pfeiffer stuck in my head because of Wayne Gretzky, that, yeah. that song. So... Um, he kind of talks about uh, there's a part in the film where he talk about like some bands kind of uh, I don't think it was actually him. I feel like uh, this was Aaron that was talking about bands kind of pushing their horn sections aside a little bit and kind of going more towards the mainstream. When I saw Goldfinger, it was just him. It was Cyrus Baluki from uh, from Newfound Glory on the drums. One of the guitar players from Story of the Year playing guitar. And then when they had songs that required the horn section, the guys from Less Than Jake came out and played the horn yeah. section. So it was it was amazing because it was like a super group on stage, yeah. but it was unlike the Goldfinger that I was used to for sure. Yeah, that's Goldfinger is one of the many bands from the '90s that is really just the front man and whoever will play with them. The guy from Story of the Year is in Goldfinger now. Okay, like he's not a hired gun, and Travis Barker plays with them. Some he recorded that last album that they put out, right? Yeah, and the last time I saw Goldfinger, he was drumming. He was, it was playing at Back to the Beach, and um, yeah, Travis is like sometimes in the band. And Mike Herrera from MXPX is in Goldfinger. Yes, now. that was he was the one who was playing bass, and I totally yeah. that slipped my mind until just now. So it is but, like yeah. a, a super group, yeah, of sorts, but it's also Goldfinger, <laughs> you know. Um, and Real Big Fish is the same. Aaron is the only guy left from the '90s. Um, Less than Jake is all the original members, right? And right. Has been for twenty something years. Like they have, I think their sax player is the new guy. He's been in the band for twenty five years or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a common thing. Uh, they just can't make enough money to keep themselves gainfully employed over that many years doing it anymore, can they? No, and if you're doing it as a hobby, you know, that's great when you're 18 to 25 years old, but then when you got, like, a wife and kids and a mortgage, all of a sudden your hobby takes up so much time and you really got to do that other job. or Right. You know, or if you're in a ska band (laughs) and... You're one of eight people, <laughs> but you could join this other band and be one of three people, play the same show, make the same money, except instead of splitting it eight ways, you split it three ways. Why not? I'm going to take that deal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's uh, And I love the way that you uh, that, that you guys touched on that in the documentary, too, because you also touched on the fact that they'd slam like eight bands onto one bill, and then you got eight bands dividing their their trap eight ways, and it's like it, right. nobody has any money to even cover a drink at the end of the night, and... 
you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I think most of the people aren't making the music solely for the money, but it's a nice little caveat to have if you can turn that into a job. Like when Aaron said, I walked out of Subway. Yeah. I, I dreamed that that story would one day happen to me. Still hasn't. Still having that dream. But right. love the fact that he just was like, I'm out. I'm a rock star now. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. uh, way premature, though. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> but I like the attitude. Right. Said he was broke for about a year, right? right? Everybody's been through that. You could do it. Just leave your job. Tell him you're going to be a rock star now. It's the, it's the best way to do it. Break your name tag in half if you have one. Throw it on the floor. Uh, I worked at a subway, so I can relate. Um, <laughs> there's no reason to stay there. Uh, in fact, I just read an article today that their tuna was tested and there's no tuna. So, yeah, private lab test. We don't need to get into that. It's all dolphin. Uh, <laughs> another thing that I, I have to touch on just because I thought it was hilarious. I've always loved, uh, I've seen the Mighty Mighty Boston's probably five or six times, mostly at Warp Tours. And one thing about a Warp Tour is it was always during the summer. I grew up in Northeast Oregon, so I used to go to the Boise Warp Tour, which a lot of times would either kick off the tour or end it. And I saw uh, Mighty Mighty Boston's in like 107 degree weather, all in their suits, moving as much as they'd moved on any other show. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were dragging people out of this pit for heat stroke left and right. And they had a guy in the Mighty Mighty Boston's in a three piece suit that only danced. He didn't play any instruments. Mm -hmm. And I always wondered until your documentary what the story was behind that guy. And it turns out he just kind of like accidentally joined the Mighty Mighty Boston's and then just made it his job to kick ass on stage. Yep. That's amazing. That's little stories like that. He's still doing it. Yeah. It's now, I mean, for those guys, it's like 35, 40 years they've been playing. And he's been in the band since almost the very beginning. Does not play an instrument. Does not sing. Only dances. Just dances. And he dances the hell out of that stage, too. Uh, There's a bare spot below where that guy's at. I know it. And, uh, uh, you know, an equally paid member too of the band, like at, that's amazing. Something else that you guys touch on in the well, I, I don't know if you touch on equally paid, but like just a full member, like yeah. considered part of the roster. Mm-hmm. So cool. Um, so not to switch directions too hard on you, but I do want to talk about your uh, career in music because it has been uh, much more decorated than we've even got to. You you played in a band, uh, I believe it was in Baltimore called Party Like It's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, you know, I was checking out some of the social media and stuff like that. You guys were playing before, like, Baltimore Ravens games, and you were doing all sorts of cool stuff. Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, that was, um, like I said earlier, we were talking about the Christmas show. You know, as the internet developed and, like, YouTube became a thing, um, and I was still playing in a bunch of ska bands and rock bands and doing music i trying i was still well into my 30s trying to make it as a musician mm-hmm. i was like this is i seem old but i look young i think i can still <laughs> um but i was playing uh an elvis tribute show with a sax player from my other ska band we were the horn section for like a legit elvis tribute like you had a full horn section and backup singers and the guy looked the part and it was great that's awesome and we were on the bus, and I don't remember why there was a bus. It was this Elvis event, and they bussed all the musicians to the event. Oh. So we were sitting on this bus, and I was like, talking to Morgan was the sax player's name, and I was like, why why can't we have, like, a me first in the gimme gimmies, but it's ska? Like, we could just do, we could do pop songs, we could do old songs, we could do whatever. And we know all the people, you know, we know the pie tasters and all these other local DC ska bands. And we're like, we could piece something together and we could do recordings and we could do YouTube videos. And I think people would really dig that. 
And he was like, yeah, sure, I'm in. And we went and played that Elvis show, and I started calling up people who I knew were either in ska bands or into ska bands. And I'm like, what if we do this thing? It's not going to be a huge commitment. We're definitely not going to play shows. It's just, you know, we'll do this for YouTube and for whatever. And we got, you know, bass player from the Pie Tasters and these other great horn players. And um, we put this band together, and we did a few recordings. We did a few YouTube videos, and it got pretty popular, at least where we were living. And then we started playing, like, a few live things, but we only knew five, six songs or so. We had done these arrangements of, like, Kesha songs and, you know, other pop songs. Um, and DC has this big cover band scene, which just means there's this desire for live music, but nobody cares about your original songs. Okay. And so all the bars in DC have cover bands, and it's usually you play four hours of just, you know, if you're an 80s band, you play 80s music, four hours, two breaks, three sets. Wow. It's a very standardized thing, but they make good money. And um, when we got our singer, Kathy, she had been playing in you know, some of these working cover bands, and she kind of brought us into this world. So we just started learning anything that could be a ska song. So we learned all the 90s hits, you know, the Real Big Fish, the Boss Tones, the Goldfinger, the Rancid, everything. And we did ska covers of like anything we could think of that would work, that would, would work, be passable. Yeah. And we started playing these bar shows, you know, four hour gigs, high energy, like 90s ska band thing. But I bet you were in great shape. Hours. Yeah. It was, it was in good shape. We were also <laughs> drinking a lot. Because um, <laughs> you make good money, but you also drink for free for four hours at a bar. Yeah. It's hard to stay away from, I imagine. Yeah. And, um, and we just started doing it. And I think at the peak of that band, we were playing, you know, two shows a weekend, every weekend, and pulling in some decent money and the occasional wedding. And we were hooked in with um, the sports bookers. We did play some football games, which is fun. They put you on a stage, like, as people are entering. The cheerleaders come out and do dances while you're playing. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, that's fun. We played the NHL, um, the Winter Classic. Oh, that's the one that's outside, right? Yeah, and that was in D.C. because the Capitals were in it. And technically, uh, because of the order of events, we opened for Billy Idol. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was actually playing the thing, and we were, again, the band you hear as you're walking up. But like, yeah. we stopped, and it's like white wedding that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> and that was great and then i had to leave that band because i moved back to oregon they're still playing you know the occasional cover gig but they're not they started some other bands they started a 2000s band that i think is very successful because nostalgia keeps creeping forward yeah it does you know 90s is now forever ago and we're old people <laughs> um but after i left i moved back to oregon and our YouTube videos kept getting all this traction, and somebody reached out to the band and said, hey, we're doing this reality show for cover bands. We really think you should enter this competition. And so I had already moved, but you know, I was able to record my trumpet parts and like piece together video, like you guys film this there, and I'll film this here, and we'll cut it together. And we did a cover for this reality show competition, and they were like, you're in, you're going to be on this show 
And so I've, I've already left. I haven't been playing in the band for six months, but we're going to be on TV. That's so awesome. Of course. <laughs> of course, I'll drop everything and we'll do this thing. And it was a cover band competition produced by YouTube, which is how they found us because we had millions of views on some of these cover things. And um, it was called Best Cover Ever. And each episode would be like a famous band judging covers of their songs. Like there's a Katy Perry episode. Oh, wow. There's a Jason Derulo episode. It was a cool show. Our episode was the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> so we did a Backstreet Boys cover. And uh, it was down to us and another group. And they flew us all to L.A., put us up, and we're playing. The host was um, uh, Ludacris. Oh, wow. So he's like... So big Talking names. Us, and we're playing a Backstreet Boys song for the Backstreet Boys. And we did this whole thing. It was like a two-day shoot. And we did a reality show with this band. It was like the coolest music thing I had ever done. And then about six months later, they're like, okay, it's the show's coming out. You guys are going to promote it. And, and the episode started airing. The Katy Perry one comes out. The blah, 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 blah. And... um the week before ours was supposed to air, this was kind of at the height of the Me Too era, some news came out about one of the Backstreet Boys. And it, I don't even remember what happened and what the accusation was, but it has since glossed over. The Backstreet Boys are fine. Nobody's yeah. canceled. But in that moment, the sponsors pulled... The episode, so our episode never aired. No one has ever oh, seen. Dude. All I have are these stories that I once played trumpet, and the prize was if you win, which I can tell the world we won this reality <laughs> show that no one will ever see. Um, but if you win, you get to perform with the group. So the wow. person who won, like you can go on YouTube and watch the Jason Derulo episode. The person who won gets to do a duet with Jason Derulo. But what we got to do was do um, a ska cover of uh, the Tell Me Why Ain't Nothing But a Honey. Uh, yeah, I, I want it that way. Okay, there you go. Uh, a ska cover that we arranged with a full like ska punk band with the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> That's awesome. On stage, <laughs> they filmed with like eight cameras, and it was rad. And that like exists somewhere, and I'll never get a copy, but that was... That was kind of the peak of that band, and then I, I stopped participating. Like, yeah. they're, they're still fine, but <laughs> when that didn't come out, I was so bummed. Oh, I imagine, man. just takes the wind out of your sails. And yeah, you're right. Uh, Backstreet Boys are even back in the news. They just uh, they formed a two-and-two super group with NSYNC called yeah. BackSync. So. Yes, I'm also on TikTok. Yeah. I'm aware. <laughs> Hashtag boy band challenge. Yeah, it's uh, it's something else, man. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, I was, you know, I just uh, was kind of following you guys on social media. Obviously, went back and and did some research. Um, I, I hope that someday that tape surfaces, so at least you can see it. Because if anybody deserves to, you definitely do. Um, especially, you know, I, I don't know if this will relate at all, but we played in a couple Battle of the Bands back when I was in college. One out in Florence, and um, there was. There was no other bands at this uh, at this place that were worthy of even being on the stage. They were like a bunch of high school kids. They were all new. They didn't have full sets. Grinch came out there, but Grinch like they they were just barely Grinch at the time. Like they had just gotten started, and we were pretty established. We've been playing a lot of shows. We went to the website a week after because we were very confident that we had won the prize, which was just a couple hundred bucks and you know, like right. a little trophy. 
and they had our picture in the winner slot with the high school band's name next to it, and then in last place was the high school band's picture with our name next to it. Oh, and no. I called them, and I'm like, "Hey, I think there's a little bit of a mix-up." And they're like, "No, that band was really good. We we." We gave it to the right people. I'm like, you guys are mixed up oh, because no. I, I hated to say it, but I knew that we were the best band there that day. It kind of sure. sounds like what you what you knew uh, as far as your reality show is concerned. Like you won hands down. You did the best job. We did our best. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, you also played, and I, I've already had you for an hour, so we're gonna wrap this up really quick. But I, I have to the nostalgic in me has to do this one thing. You played in a band called Alter Ego here in uh, Eugene for many years. Um, Awesome punk band. Um, you had a drummer, phenomenal. Remind me of his name. Um, our drummer for most of the time was Now Hirota. Yes, Now. My Japanese friend. And uh, how's he doing, man? That guy, as as a young college kid, I looked up to him a lot. He, I just thought that he was the most kick-ass punk drummer around. He is still kick-ass. He's got three kids. He lives in Tokyo. Um, he runs uh, his dad's old business and several other businesses. He's like a successful Japanese businessman. That's awesome. With some kids, but he's still... I, I was over there uh, a few years ago now, but for another documentary project, and uh, his company was having like their one-year anniversary party, and he and his brother got out there and did like a drum-off, because his brother's also a great drummer. Really? And it was like, cool businessman dude, but also still a punk rock drummer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty sweet. Well, I have something else a little nostalgic here. Um, this is actually the drum head that I uh, was on the front of my Pearl kit when I was playing with you guys. Uh, I sold that drum kit, unfortunately. That was the kit that was recorded for One Point Star's album. But uh, this drum head, I would never let it go because it has some wonderful things. We talked about Eugene Rock Music. Here's a sticker from EugeneRockMusic.com. We talked about Alter Ego. That's Taylor's band sticker right there. And we also mentioned uh, Ray Mastro Giovanni, which is this uh, Mastro 3 right here. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'll get that a little closer to you so you can yeah. take a look. Oh, man. And there's something to somebody that has a, a nostalgia streak in them. Like, I, that's always been, I keep pictures, I keep everything I can, I, little trinkets, just the stuff that you gave me, the promotional items from your movie will go into my collection that will never, uh, you know, it, it'll never be thrown away. And. Um, I knew that you would probably uh, be into seeing something like that with some of your old stickers. I mean, th that's a lot of your old work right there, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think I designed these One Point Star stickers. You did? I know I ordered them because I had this hookup for these cheap paper stickers, which 20 years later, they have held up. They really have. Like, I, I did these for a lot of bands, uh -huh. and I, I have a bunch. And aside from here, you can see the Eugene Rock Music one is a little scuffed off because they're paper. But if you don't scuff them... They, they hold up really well, but I for sure got those done. And they were um, they were packaging labels, like, for meat. Oh, really? <laughs> and I had figured out, because we were, I don't know where, where you were at, but when I was in college, I had no money. None. I was dirt poor, but I also played in bands, and that's where the DIY comes from. Like, we're going to make our own T-shirts so that we can have T-shirts. We can't afford to get T-shirts made. We can't afford stickers, but... I found this like meat packaging company that's like, oh, the paper labels, those are less than a penny if you order, you know, 500. Right. It's like for $5? Yeah, we'll take, yeah, <laughs> thousands. <laughs> right. And we made thousands of these dumb paper stickers and we we're just tossing them out. But 
that was where it came from was from just a lack of resources. Yeah. Like we want to do cool stuff. We look up to all these bands, less than Jake. They had all the cool merchandise and all the awesome stuff. All the, the bands that came through had all this awesome stuff. We couldn't afford it. And that's why I got into recording. Mm -hmm. I couldn't afford studio time. So I would record other bands and then you guys would give me like, I don't know, a hundred dollars. I would take that to buy a microphone so that we could do another recording. Right. <laughs> like I remember for your record, I didn't have enough microphones to record a drum set. Yeah. We had to so, piecemeal it together. I remember that. Yeah. And I took like, you guys paid me half up front and I bought the microphones that we used. Like I didn't make any money, <laughs> but I had those microphones. Had those microphones. After, and that was how we would do it. Like, Do you remember how we how we uh, deadened the room? We hung a mattress in the window and then duct taped a bunch of pillows around it because we had that big picture window right in the front where we needed oh, to record yeah. drums. Yeah, um, that tracks. I mean, it, I actually, <laughs> I got one. I pulled one off because I just, I, I wanted to play it for you. And uh, oh, no. I'm not going to, uh, I, I'm not tooting my own horn here as much as I'm tooting Taylor's horn because not only did you, uh, excuse me, record and produce this track, but you also joined us for it on vocals because as the only five-piece punk band in the world that didn't have two people that would sing, uh, One Point Star needed a little help. And when we record, and I actually have the copy of the recorded with our lead singer, Steve-O, just doing it all himself. Mm -hmm. Way better idea to have you fill in the backup vocals because the contrast definitely built it. The song's called Better Than Sex, and uh, this is some of Taylor Mord's very early work uh, <laughs> accompanied by my old band, One Point Star. So there you have it, just a little bit of uh, a song called Better Than Sex by an old band called One Point Star that used to exist and buy as many paper stickers as we could get our hands on. Oh, man. I've, I have tears in my uh, eyes. Do you really? Nostalgia <laughs> tears. That happens to me a lot. It happened to me the other day. I drove by the Gateway Mall, and it's not a mall anymore, and I got these stupid tears in my eyes. But, like, <laughs> I just had a vivid memory. It might have been at the Wow Hall, but I think I only did that song with you guys live once. Mm-hmm. Was it at the Wow Hall? It was at the Wow Hall, yes, sir. And I could just like hearing it just brought me back to that that time, and what a great time! That yeah, was a lot of fun, had. man. We had a lot of fun. I I get sometimes I get a little bit uh, scolded for being as nostalgic about my band because while I thought and and apologies forever if I ever came off as a dick because I always thought that that band was going to go somewhere and I treated <laughs> it like it was. We uh, all did, yeah. I mean. And uh, you know, it, I always play it for people because I'm really proud of it. I think that you, for the money that we paid you, which was pennies on the dollar, you produced a wonderful album for us and I'm going to have it with me for the rest of my life. And I get to listen to it. I mean, 
you know, these guys that were in this band are now my my lifelong friends. They play they were all in my wedding. They we actually played a set at my wedding of cover songs that we'd picked out specifically for it. And nice. uh you know, it, it it means so much to me. Uh not only that you would that you know, this happened and you did this for us and made it sound as good as it sounds but that you actually came and wanted to do this podcast with me because this is like my next adventure in life. And uh, um, I just, I really appreciate you joining me in the man room today, dude. I'm starting to get a little bit choked up too because, you know, I was super excited to talk to you. You've had so much success um, and, and you've done so many great things. Um, what what you were involved with with me is just a tiny little blip on the radar, but I think it was really awesome. And uh, I'm just super glad to hear that you're back in Eugene and I can't wait to see what you come up with next, dude. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been awesome catching up with you. I feel like um, podcasts are now like the only reason anyone has in-depth conversations anymore. And it's so like I was excited when you reached out because like we knew each other 20 years ago and we, we haven't had a chance to catch up. I've only been back in town for a few weeks, but like those were what I refer to as the good old days, you know, yep. playing in bands no responsibility, no money, and just, like, music every day and stupid paper stickers and <laughs> flyers everywhere, and why don't we just do a Christmas show, and why don't we do this and that and the wow hall, and just all those things. There are very few people in the world that I can just sit and talk to about those times that will get it. And you're one of those people. So for sure, man. Thanks for having me over. Hey, no problem. Uh, love to have you back another time. We do one of these each week, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the man room. Taylor Morton, everybody, thank you so much. Peace. Thanks for listening. And, and. Transmission. Transmission.